0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. In today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Jen Budd, who is a former senior Border Patrol agent turned immigrant rights activist. We talked about how she decided to become a Border Agent and what went into the training, the abuse and misogyny she faced there, and why she finally decided to leave. She told me that it's really hard in the Border Patrol to have integrity. Jen's willingness to speak out about her experience is so brave, and I hope you learn a lot from this episode.
1: Hi, this is Jim Budd, and I'm a former senior Border Patrol agent. I believe and I know that asylum is not a crime and being an immigrant is not a crime. Sorry, not sorry.
2: Two weeks ago, I briefed the media and testified in Congress that our immigration system was at the breaking point. That breaking point has arrived this week at our border. CBP is facing an unprecedented humanitarian and border security crisis all along our southwest border. And nowhere has that crisis manifested more acutely than here in El Paso.
0: Kind of one of the difficulties of the job is you have to switch on and off from humanitarian mission to this guy trying to take your life. Every time we'd get off camera, somebody would walk up who was with Border Patrol and say, listen, I don't want to be quoted, but I feel like we are being treated unfairly. Right. They were telling us they were telling us this off camera. And I said,
2: well, you've got to let us show what you guys are going through.
0: So I think I'd like to start with giving my listeners a better understanding of who you are. So uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood, where you grew
1: up, what Um, your family
0: was like, (laughs) what you wanted to be when you grew up.
1: I grew up mostly in Huntsville, Alabama, and my childhood was rife with uh, a lot of alcoholism on my mother's side a lot of violence and abuse from her towards me. Mm. And my father chose to deal with that by always getting jobs out of town and having an affair with various affairs. So escape? Yeah, abandonment kind of. But, I mean, you know, like they're still together and everything, but um, that's that's how he handled it. And honestly just didn't know anything was wrong about being you know, violently beaten like that because I was isolated so much. And that was your normal? That was my normal, yeah. So what I did to deal with that was I studied and I read a lot. So I did really good in school. And I just naturally had, I think, a lot of sympathy for my mother. I knew she was mentally ill and, and self-medicating and, and so forth. And when I got to college, I saw my chance – because I did well enough in school, and I went to Auburn University. It's like you either go to Auburn or Alabama Mm -hmm. in Alabama. So I went to Auburn, and I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Law, and then all of a sudden I found myself back at home, and that was kind of like the first instance of recognizing how traumatic and bad my childhood had been. Because you'd been out for a little bit. Yeah, and I was like, I can't stay here. You know, and I just thought, I'm I'm applying to all these law schools. I graduated top of my class with honors. I'm supposed to go to law school. And I just am, like, desperate to get out of there. All I can think of is I'm going to get more school loans, and I don't want to be in the same position, you know. Right. A lawyer in the South doesn't make that much money on the average. of certainly starting out. And so I wanted to work, and a, a family friend had told me about the Border Patrol, and I said, the what? <laughs> because... I didn't know anything about it. I had. What year is this? Um, this was so I graduated in December of 93, but I had heard about the Border Patrol sometime in 94 because it took about a year to get hired. So, you know, I think immigration maybe was has always obviously been a big issue in California and, and in the Southwest, but in Alabama at that time, it wasn't at all. Hmm. So I had never heard of it.
0: I did it to run away. You did it to escape. Yeah. Was there something
1: intriguing about that line of service? I had done my internship at the Mobile, Alabama, the Mobile County District Attorney's Office my last quarter. And I was very fortunate in that um, their investigative unit was headed by a former FBI agent who was uh, very ethical and very well versed in in law enforcement, and everybody in the office was just amazing. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was like what we would hope law enforcement would be. And they had every year in Mobile County, they had uh, an investigation of different agency within to just automatically to make sure, you know, like a pop investigation. And so what they did was they brought in this. Old investigator, retired investigator by the name of Bob Eddy. And he I assisted him and he taught me a lot about investigations and how to run investigations. And it turns out, and I didn't know this because he didn't brag about it, but after I had left there and I had even worked for him afterwards privately as an investigator in Mobile, but after we had separated <clears throat> a couple of years, I was watching Oprah Winfrey and all of a sudden there's Mr. Bob Eddy on Oprah wow. Winfrey. And I'm like, what does Mr. Eddie do? Wow. <laughs> and it turns out that he was one of the first investigators, like, in might have been right after the church bombing in Birmingham mm. happened. Or it might have been the second one where they brought in more people because the first one didn't go anywhere. But he's the one that figured out which Klan members that, you know, were involved in everything. And I, th- I don't think he could bring them to trial at that time. There was a lot of... So it seemed like yeah. everything was So I thought this is what I want to do. This is right. great. You know, and I was like the first intern to get my own case. And they're like, You're good at this. I, I like, you know, getting the puzzle and putting it back together. And I just really enjoyed that. So tell me thing. tell me a little bit about the training process. Like what did you go through? In the Border Patrol? Yeah. Um, so I went to the Glencoe Academy in Glynn County, Georgia. And it was a four months at that time. Mas al menos, four months. And we did, you know, a lot of physical training. It's mostly geared towards the men. The women have to run the same times and everything as the men do. It's kind Mm. of a way to keep the numbers of the women down. No, no other agency does that. The military doesn't even do that. Interesting. But the legal training was really piss poor. Um, Meaning what? They didn't teach you anything about international law? No, they don't teach international law. They didn't teach constitutional law. And then the law that they do teach, the immigration law that they do teach, it's, you know, multiple choice. And it's like, eight USC 1325, what's the title of that? And then they give you, I mean, you have to be a moron not to be able to get it. And the instructors pretty much give you the answers before the test anyhow. So they're just pushing people all the way through. And the Spanish was a joke. The Spanish, even today, they say that Border Patrol Spanish is the equivalent of three years of college or three classes in college. But that's that's not true. Basically, you memorize 13 sentences, which are like, where are you from, last time you crossed, you know, and that kind of stuff.
0: So you didn't learn anything about people coming over to seek asylum and what what – no, no, nothing about immigration law.
1: No, and I would say back then, though, the agency back then was like, We're trying to keep drugs out, we're trying to keep uh, criminal. So what did out. you think that you were doing in that job? That's what I thought I was doing. That's what they told me was, you know, there's a lot of drugs coming across the border, there's a lot of people bringing uh, counterfeit goods across the border. There's a lot of people who need help. But nobody ever mentioned families looking for jobs and stuff like that. So I had no idea. I mean, my very first apprehension out in Campo was a family. And I literally am looking around like, where are the drugs? Where are the guns? Right. You know, and I was very confused by that. ¶¶
3: a new Homeland Security Inspector General report shows migrants wedged together inside overcrowded rooms. The government says children had no access to showers and limited clothing.
1: I remember I was talking to a family member that night after I had my first arrest and and she said, How how do you like your job? And my response to be frank was, I feel like a fucking Nazi. Really? So you knew that from day one. Yeah, I knew. I knew this was wrong. So I wonder what that moral
0: compass is that you had then, even when I'm assuming it wasn't as bad as it is now. No,
1: no, it's not as bad.
0: It's very interesting to me that you were able to identify what that was especially given the background, your background and your family.
1: Yeah, I just, you know, even though my family was very traumatizing uh childhood and so forth, I was still raised in um in a I would say somewhat liberal household, at least a democratic household. So, and and I was educated in my house and then just in the books I chose to read with, you know, the civil rights movement of the 60s. And, and that's what I believed in. And then as I got to college, that's the line. That's the way I went with the law. And so you
0: did have a very clear moral compass. Yeah, I yeah. did have a
1: very clear moral compass.
0: So what was your title?
1: Well, when you start out, my title was Border Patrol Agent. But then I, uh, by the time I left, I was a senior patrol agent and I was an intelligence agent at San Diego Sector. So, tell me about what your duties were at that time,
0: like in the beginning and then
1: through your promotions. So, in the beginning, uh, Campo is on the very edge of San Diego County, uh, the eastern side. It's what would be considered high desert. And so, there's a lot of mountains and boulders and, you know, chaparral, brush thickness, snakes, mountain lions. And you basically. You know, they have some sensors. If they call out a sensor, the somebody foot traffic hits the sensor, the dispatch will call it out. You go to where that sensor is, and you find tracks and footprints, and you follow them. So it's learning how to – they call it sign-cutting. You learn how to track and sign-cut and age it and tell if it's new or if it's old, and you track them through the mountains sometimes for days until you catch them. So you're just camped out in the mountains Yeah, driving a truck through the dirt roads – all by yourself, um, yeah. You that don't work in horrifying. Like I'm having a panic attack just thinking about. Well, that? I was. I think yeah, I thought it was fun. <laughs> I mean, it, I thought it was fun to hike all day. I I did have some pride when I could help somebody, when I can find somebody or return a kid to their family or something like that. Or, you know, sometimes you could get uh, a drug bust. That kind of felt good sometimes, but that wasn't very often. Mostly it was families. How many arrests do you think you've made? I You know, it's got to be upwards around 4,000 or so, I would think.
0: And what percentage of that was the bad guys you were told you would be catching versus the family?
1: Easily less than 1%. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, I it's like, you know, I'm coming up on a group. I think the biggest group I ever caught was about 110 by myself. And I learned very quick. It, the agents, we're taught to yell and scream, and that's how the men are. And I learned very quick to be nice and come up and say, Is everybody okay? Is anybody injured? Who needs water? And then I didn't have as much trouble if I was nice and, mm. you know, because they don't want trouble.
3: The pain of seeing that your family members are being some of the ones to get deported. People you know, people you've grown up with, people you've seen have kids, grandkids even, and they get deported. The only thing you can do is be scared all the time. que al bonito. Y yo me quisiera quedar aquí con mi bonito. Y aquí no hay gente vida.
0: So you go home at night. Yeah. And what are you feeling when you're home alone, thinking about your day, thinking about the people you work with?
1: At first, I'm just thankful to be alive, but not for the reasons that many would think. Um, My first year there, they would not issue me a bulletproof vest because I was the only female at the station. I see your looks. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Yeah, I was the only female at the station. So what was that, only... some sort of, like, hazing that they wouldn't it give you? It was a punishment, yeah. <gasps> so I worked without. Wait, vest. how did they
0: tell you that?
1: You're they not going to get one of these? we're out in the mountains, and it's just really hard for us to get a vest for you. They just weren't ordering it. I mean, because it's, not, I mean, Campo's not that far from San Diego. Yeah, exactly. It's not like you're in Iraq. We have trucks there, and That's we get right. gas up there, so, you know. So, I was always thankful that I didn't you know get shot at and i didn't it didn't die because of that, but I always had stress when I went to muster that's the meeting you have before you go out in the field where they tell you you know what's going on in the shift before you, so mm-hmm. you know if you need mm-hmm. to look for anything specific and I always had stress at the end of the night because they make us sit around and wait till everybody got in, and that's only because. I'm with other agents and being in the station, the station walls were covered with pornography. The cameras, or I mean, I'm sorry, the computers of the, the managers, the supervisors and the bosses all had, you know, for their screensavers were all por- pornographic. My mail slot where they put my time cards and stuff, they would put used condoms in it. Mm. Sometimes they would take all the trucks. So, I would end up just where they take all the keys to the trucks, and i would they would tell me to sit around and answer the phones and be the secretary and so I mm. just waited for them to leave and go out on shift and then I'd put my camel back on and hike out to the border by myself and just do things on foot and patrol on foot and stuff so I mean was it stressful hiking through the mountains in the, in the middle of the night sometimes in the areas that I knew were mostly concerned with drug smuggling. Right. But most the majority of people that I met, as far as migrants that I apprehended, were really good people.
0: Yeah, I wanna I wanna devote a big part of this interview to asylum seekers and the immigrants because I think so much of the important work that you're doing right now is is being the voice of those who make this journey for a better life but I think it's really important for my listeners to understand how systemic Mm -hmm. the issues are Mm -hmm. in this division. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, is there any protocol as far as reporting? If you saw injustices, were you meant to keep that quiet or like what, what what was it like functioning on a daily basis there? So
1: I, I guess I would be known as a rat. <laughs> um, you get, they call it diming out. So if I see Agent Milano hit a migrant and I go to the supervisor and I say, Agent Milano hit a migrant for no reason, then the next day or that night I can expect to find a whole bunch of dimes in my mail drawer. Right. And they're telling you that you're a rat and you're diming people out and stuff like that. So uh, you're encouraged to stay quiet. And I routinely, I, you know, I would tell people, if you don't want me to rat on you, then don't do anything in front of me (laughs) it gives me the cause to rat on you. And how prevalent was that behavior? Well, you know, I mean, fortunately, because I worked by myself and I didn't get a lot of backup, I didn't have that issue. But then, like, if I'm at the checkpoints or, you know, whatever, it's prevalent I mean it's there are so many especially for the men, there's so many uh sexual assault allegations uh against the agents from migrants, and the border patrol just kind of makes them go away, or they kind of sometimes if they get a lawyer, they'll pay their lawyers and just make it go away, and then you never hear about it so and is that common, yeah, yeah, I mean it's really common, I would say. I think about 20% of the agents in the Border Patrol are trying to be professional.
0: That's it? 20%? Yeah. So two out, out of every 10.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a system from training all the way up to the chief. And, and and they structure this and they teach this through the academy. Right. It's all It's all set up that way, right? And then when you get to post-academy, it's set up that way. And they And you up-
0: probably learn really quick the rules,
1: right? Yeah, you learn well. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I ever really learned it.
0: Well, you're a <laughs> disruptor. You'd be a disruptor no matter what. That's yeah. what we love about you. Yeah, Jack. but
1: no, you learn yeah, you learn. It's 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 a brotherhood, and I'll pet your back, and you pet mine. And that's what the setups are like in post academy. So you graduate the academy, and you go to post academy at your station for a couple of months, and that's where they decide if you're going to play ball or not. Are you going to use the racist terms? Are you going to you know ignore it when you're training? And is that
0: encouraged or discouraged? Oh, big it time is encouraged. encouraged. Everybody
1: does it, and they look down on you and question you if you should be there or not. And they can fail you on your Spanish boards. In post academy, and that's exactly what post academy is for: is to find those who are not going to play ball. The women, if the women file, you know, sexual assault charges against the agents who are sexually assaulting them, they are gone too. So it's it's a way to weed out agents that don't fit, and it's a closed system. The agents are the ones doing the hiring, the agents are the ones doing the training, they're doing the firing, and so if you make it past your post academy what they do um and where was is this operation gatekeeper time yeah operation gatekeeper will time. you explain that
0: a little bit to to just to give people an overview of where we were on immigration at that time
1: yeah so operation gatekeeper started in october of 1994 and i was hired in june of 1995 so so it's the clinton administration clinton administration under the crime bill and republicans had been pushing clinton really hard saying you're not tough enough on immigration and so this was the answer. Small groups,
2: like the one here in Chicano Park, Rallying at a handful of border cities from California to Texas Tuesday.
3: We're here to denounce the 25 years of Operation
2: Gatekeeper. Director of American Friends Service Committee Pedro Rios claims President Clinton's decision in 1994 significantly increased the border wall. He says in the 22 years that followed, at least 8,300 people died and 5,500 disappeared while trying to cross. President Clinton launched Operation Gatekeeper, a mix of infrastructure and new enforcement strategies it included the start of the fence that's in place today. CBP says gatekeeper reduced illegal crossings in San Diego by
1: 75%. And so I knew the border before there was any fence or a wall. And it was a much different environment, but that was the beginning of the militarization. That was the beginning of the us versus them. And um that we're not going to see this as a community. We're going to see this as a war zone. It's the basis and the foundation that was laid for what we're seeing today. During the Clinton administration.
0: I think it's important to recognize that because so much of what we hear from activists and advocates that have been in this space for a long time, I think it's been very easy for people to pin this all on Donald Trump. (laughs) And... Yeah, he's a big part yeah. of the problem because of his racism and xenophobia and everything that that's sort of stirred up in our country. But all of the laws, the laws haven't been changed. These are all mm-hmm. laws that have been in place since then, like 1325, 1326, which mm-hmm. is the, the making a crossing that is not at a
1: port of entry illegal. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that was set by
1: the Clinton administration. Well, that was set, actually, it was changed to criminal during the Bush administration after 9-11. So when I was an agent, it was considered to be an administrative charge, mm. somewhat like a speeding ticket. So we would never put anybody in jail for 1325. Interesting. Yeah. So Bush administration, bef- what year was that? I, I think they did it in 2003.
0: 2003. So yeah. that
1: would have been after 9-11. Right. It was in response to 9-11, and it was meant to be um, not a you know a mandatory kind of thing. It was meant to be like if you had somebody crossing s- super amount of times, and you knew that they were maybe a smuggler, right? Then you could use or this. some sort of
0: criminal background, or right. or something that yeah, you had you knowledge use. of, of yeah. some sort of criminal yeah. activity, and yeah. that these
1: people people would be a danger. Society, right. But what Trump did is he came in and... Weaponized it. He, Yeah, he changed the policy. So he's not necessarily changing the laws, but because it's under the executive administration, immigration is, they're allowed to change the policy. Right. So he has a lot of leeway in that.
0: So the protocol, and that's why we saw um, separated families yeah. and people being detained for so long. Right. The Flores settlement just being basically ignored right. and thrown out. Mm-hmm. So... It, knowing what you know about this process from your experience and what you saw with your very own eyes is anything surprising you about what we're seeing now?
1: Well, I remember when they announced that they were separating the children I mean I just i yeah <laughs> I was just floored, and I went on Twitter and I was like, Lay down your guns and badges. This is too far. <laughs>
3: que dijeron que me iban a separar los otros y yo no había que me iban a separar pero le pregunté y en un lugar especial me dijeron Entonces lo que yo
0: pido ahora es que me devuelvan a mi niño lo más pronto que se pueda porque yo para eso salí de mi país para darle un futuro mejor a él.
3: Woman asking for is just to have my son back. That's the reason I came here, was to save my son's life. I just want him to be home to take care of him.
0: Can you have compassion for people in the patrol that do what they do? Can you shine a little light on why they're continuing to do this job?
1: I've wrestled with that for a while, because even though the patrol was very harsh to me, It's kind of like, you know, I left my harsh family and went to another harsh family. Hmm. So the patrol was very familiar kind of treatment to me. And I would, it's interesting when I talk to agents face to face and they're in the green uniform and I see the badge. It's, I feel comfortable with that, oddly enough. I can't imagine you feeling comfortable with that. Yeah, I know. Is it just because it was such a... It's such part of your life yeah it's just like you just become that you know i don't know how to explain it i mean i guess people who are in the military get that kind of thing Mm -hmm. you're not just a marine you know the marines aren't just your job you're a marine you know kind of thing and that's how the border patrol sees itself and it's almost like all especially as i think the women all the punishment and the abuse you take excuse me you're still kind of Proud that you're making it through kind of thing, I guess. Right. Like that alone is a badge of honor that you've made it that far. Yeah. And so part of me understands when agents tell me, well, I don't agree with it either. What do you want me to do? I have three years to retirement. Mm -hmm. But another part of me is like I left after six years because I knew what that agency was and what it could become and i knew it could become this but i never thought that our system of government would let it would allow this. it to go so far and it took 911 i really think to allow it to get this far right where we don't question law enforcement officers and and when when law enforcement officers or or, or their leaders there's no accountability leaders, yeah our question it's like how dare you question- you know Tom Homan's always like that? How dare you question how brave my men and women are, and it's like you know that's that's indicative of of that <clears throat> he's trying to defend his actions he doesn't want to be accountable of it, and the border patrol is the same way I mean, I guess I can have sympathy for him and that I know that they have family and they have children's, but that doesn't mean that you can turn around and treat other people like that, you know I mean, we all have family. We all have children, and they know what they're doing is against the law. So, no, I really don't sympathize with these agents. I don't. You know I love my
0: Third Love bras. With more than 80 sizes, including their signature half cup sizes, Third Love brings you convenience and the perfect bra. You can find your fit online with Third Love's 60 second fit finder quiz. Then you just need to order and you could try it on at home. No more awkward fitting room experiences. Over 14 million women have taken the quiz to date. Third Love helps you identify your breast size and shape and find styles that fit your body. Their team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to make sure you find the perfect fit also third love donates all of their gently used returned bras to women in need supporting charities in their local san francisco bay area and across the united states so far third love has donated over 15 million dollars in bras wow Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com sorry now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com sorry for 15% off today. I'm so excited to tell all of you about BarkBox. Established in 2011, BarkBox is the dog-crazy, dog-obsessed company that celebrates the special connection you share with your dog. That same anticipation and delight you felt as a kid for every party, birthday, and holidays is the same joy they deliver to you and your dog every time a BarkBox arrives. They deliver a range of innovative toys, all-natural treats, and crazy dog joy, always built around a surprise theme for dog and dog parents to enjoy. BarkBox's all-natural treats and chews are made and produced with meat sourced in the USA and Canada, and they never use any soy, corn, or wheat. They offer free shipping to anywhere in the contiguous United States. Bark boxes are a $40 value with plans starting at $22 a month. Celebrate your dog with Bark Box. It's like the joy of a million belly scratches delivered directly to your door. And happiness is 100% guaranteed. If your dog doesn't love something, they'll replace it for free. No questions asked. So for your free extra toy with BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com slash Alyssa when you subscribe to a 6 or 12 month plan. You will receive an extra toy for a total of 3 toys in every box. That's an additional $9 value added to each box for free. Again, that's BarkBox.com slash Alyssa for your free toy. So was there one specific moment where you said, you know what, I can't be here anymore. I got to go.
1: Yeah, it was a moment when they tried to kill me. So I was at Sector Intelligence. What is that? Well, uh, San Diego Sector Headquarters, and then they have their, uh, an intelligence unit. And it's, it's pretty, like, difficult to get on because there's only like 10 agents out of all the San Diego Sector, you know, so there's like seven or eight stations in San Diego, so there's thousands upon thousands, and then there's like 10 of us selected to to do this. And so it was a prized position, but they still wanted me to work in the East County. And that's because the mountains are very difficult to learn. So once you learn them, they don't want to take an agent from like one of the northern checkpoints and put them in East County because they won't know what they're doing in right. the area. So I was still working that. But I had also worked prior to that, I had worked some drug details with DEA in East County, and had gotten to <clears throat> know them pretty well. And they admitted to me that they knew that the boss of my station at Campo was the one that was organizing the smuggling of narcotics. Holy Big shit. amounts. Like, big-time amounts. Not hundreds of pounds. We're talking thousands of pounds. Wow. And we kind of all at the station knew that because... The way he was organizing shift change, we could tell the changes that he was doing. And it was like, well, he's dead now. so It's not that bad. But um, we could tell because he would say, you can't go down this road and you can't go down this road when you're going to such and such area, the main area that has drugs coming through. You need to go down this paved road and when you get almost to this point, you're going to announce over the radio, which everybody can hear, what your location is. So what that's telling the people who are bringing the drugs across is, okay, these age and they probably he probably was giving them our, our location, you know, locations that were assigned to that night yeah. and things. But it, I mean, he was running it every shift change it was morning noon and night oh my God. and so they knew exactly where we were and some of the agents decided to test this and they went down the roads we weren't supposed to go down to get to the border road and sure enough every single time here comes a big van or something just loaded with drugs Whoa.
2: and
1: so the interesting thing, too, is then he also, the, he picked those roads to go because then he had people who lived in the middle of nowhere in these roads in trailers watching. So he's got lookouts that are watching, too. <gasps> so we kind of figured this out, and I started investigating it. But I wanted, to, I wanted to see what his reaction would be if he knew I was investigating it. So I went out to one of the roads, and I'm kind of walking around, and I'm in plain clothes, but I've got my walkie on me, and I've got my gun on me. And I mean, within two minutes, comes over dispatch that, you know, suspicious person's walking down West Indian Road, da-da-da-da-da. And all of a sudden, the sheriffs come flying. And I'm like, what are the sheriffs doing listening to our, right, our right, channel? Right, right, right. And then the Border Patrol comes and, you know, they see my badge and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden over the radio, I hear the boss of the station, you know, mm-hmm. and calls my call number, Charlie 178, get to 825, telling me to get to the station, Campo. And so I drive in and, you know, other Border Patrol agents that know what I'm doing are like winking at me and stuff. And, you know, because I, I mean, I did have a few friends <laughs> at Campo. And so I went in and and I was waiting in the senior agent's trailer. We just live in trailers up there. And he walks in and I mean it's like quail. Everybody goes running out the doors and I'm in there all alone with him and I'm sitting in a chair and it's got arms on it and he leans over and he so he's trapped me cuz he's got his hands down in front of me. And he says, "I know what you're doing." Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's got his like smoky breath right in my face. And he's like, I know what you're doing. And I know that you fucking think you're smarter than I am. And all your little shit agents that are like you, good agents. And he says, I'll make sure that at the very least you sit at a desk the rest of your fucking career. I am working with the sheriffs, I've got plenty of people watching. We know what you're doing. Oh, my you God. Know. And I just nodded. You know, I didn't make eye contact. I'm just looking at the floor, and I nodded, and then he walks away. Then immediately go to a supervisor there at the station and tell him what happened. He went, of course, to tell him that I was telling him what happened, which is now, you know, they're coming after me. So I jump in my uh, undercover piece of crap car that I was driving from Sector and drive back down to Sector Headquarters. And I'm talking to my boss at intelligence, who is the same rank as the boss. So it's called the patrol agent charge. It's the same rank.
0: It shouldn't be this hard to
1: have integrity. It's really hard in the board of patrol yeah. to have integrity. And I'm like, you know, in his office and I'm relaying the story that I just told you. And I'm just like, and, and then he's like, I think, I think maybe you just misunderstood him. And I said, oh, we're not going down this. Are we? Are we really going to do this? And he said, yeah, you misunderstood him. But I understand why you're afraid. And I tell you what, we're going to put out a um, supervisory position here at Sector Headquarters. And everybody can put in for it. And you'll put in for it. But we're going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And nobody will know that it wasn't competitive but just us. And we'll keep it between us. And that way you'll be safe. And you don't ever have to go up to Campo again. And it's like, this. wait. No. <laughs> They're just trying to silence you. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, no. I said, I remember I jumped up and I was like, this is that shit I'm talking about. And I was so mad. And he's like, don't you yell at me, young lady, like I was a child. And I said, I'm out of here. And I left and I was going home and I don't even, I, th- I was just like, what am I going to do? I'm driving home. And before I even get home, I get a call that says, you have to do a midnight shift in Campo. And I'm like, what do you mean I have to do a midnight shift? There's no mandatory overtime. I, I'm i an agent at Intel. I work undercover in Chula Vista. I don't work up in Campo, except I drive out there. And they said, no, you got to be in uniform. And so I get up there at midnight. Now, first of all, I'm like the most senior, senior patrol agent up there. That's like right. the highest, I'm the highest ranking person. At so that you knew station. it was odd. Yeah, 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 you knew it was. I weird. made sure I had my vest then. Yeah, good, good, good girl. <laughs> I made sure I had my extra ammo with me then, and uh, and then they assign me to what they refer to as an X, which is a stationary position with a scope truck, so that you can use night vision and look at night. Well, that's a position for a trainee or somebody who's injured, may or maybe somebody who is doing a double shift and is tired of hiking and needs to have a more sedentary position. You know. And I was like, why am I working on it? And why is it right here in the drug zone, 20 yards off the wall? I mean, that is so dangerous. Not only that, that position with a scope truck, you couldn't see anything. I was like, this is, you know, and I'm like, in muster, because I'm more senior, I'm like, were they trying to get you killed
0: or were they trying to this set you up is, so that they could setup. kill you so that it would seem like it was such a dangerous position that you lost your life doing your job?
1: I think that. Yeah. yeah. And so and and I remember raising my <sighs> hand in mustard going, what? And, and they said, because the boss said so. And I was like, oh, OK. So <laughs> that told me what was going on. So I took my truck out there, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm looking around. And all of a sudden, at like 3 a.m. in the morning, all night long, I've been talking to everybody in the zone, you know, on the walkies and what's going on. At 3 a.m., it's really quiet, and this automatic weapon fire comes across from the south side. Now, I can see the muzzle flashing, but I can't see where it's coming from it from and if i pull my sidearm to shoot i'm just gonna hit the fence or there are houses on the other side yeah so i could hit a kid oh my god so my best option is to get the heck out of there so the bullets are so close that they are literally i i can see them ricocheting off the rocks next to me
0: holy shit jen
1: and i just throw this truck, and you're supposed to only drive with like the mast down, the mast was all the way up. I like throw it in reverse, do a three point turn and I start flying north down this dirt road and I get probably two or three hundred yards north and the way the terrain is, I knew they couldn't hit me and they couldn't see me from there because there's little hills in between and I pull into this little kind of donut circle that's covered with high brush and everything and I, the whole time I'm like flying down this road, trying not to wreck my truck. And I'm like, just not screaming, but I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I could imagine. (laughs) I'm like, you know, shots fired, shots fired, and blah, blah, blah. And nobody in my zone responds. It's crickets. Nobody at the station responds. Nobody at, at sector dispatch responds. And I know they can hear me. It's just dead. And I'm sitting out there and I have my gun in my hand and I'm just like, what am I going to do? And it's middle of nowhere. And I can see all of a sudden I see these headlights coming down the paved road that comes oh around the dirt my road. my God. And I'm watching it the last mile and it com- it's coming towards me. And I'm like, and I'm like making sure I have everything I need. And I've got that gun pointed right at the door, but it's below the frame and up pulls this white, plain white expedition and rolls down the window and it's the head boss of the station. What the hell is the head boss of the station doing when he works a nine to five, nine to four, whatever job Monday through Friday only takes his gun out once in a while when he has to go qualify. Hasn't arrested anybody in God knows how many years. And he says, I heard you on the radio that you were getting shot at and I thought I would come out to see if you were okay. <laughs> Just like you Did know. you think
0: you were gonna be killed in that moment?
1: I'm looking at where his hands are and he's got he's a big smoker and I can see he's got a cigarette in his right hand and his left hand is hanging out the door. And I'm looking in the back and I don't think anybody's with him. So I figured that I was okay, but I still I had my finger on the trigger. I didn't have it to the side. I had it on the trigger and I have one. We always carry one in the chamber, but I have one in the chamber and I didn't show him that I had it there. And then he just said, did you learn your fucking lesson? (gasps) And so then I just, I holstered my gun and I put the car in drive and I drove away and I walked into, I went back to the station, which was about 15 miles away. And I, um, Parked the truck and threw the keys on the inside supervisor's desk and he was like where are you going and I said I'm I'm done I'm done I'm going home that's it and I you know I went home that night and at the time we were just uh girlfriends but now I've been with my wife for almost 19 years now and and I said I'm going to die out there, you know? And it's like I take these details because I want to do good. I want to stop drugs from coming into the country. I want to stop people from bringing little girls in and sex trafficking and this and that. I don't want to arrest families just because they're looking for a job. That's why I don't like working in the field anymore. That's why I never did. But even when I'm trying to do good, I'm getting kicked in the teeth. Left and they right. They make it impossible. And I said, I'm going to die out there. Yeah. And nobody's going to care. And I said, I, c- I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this
0: anymore. So was it easy to get out or was it one of those situations where they were afraid you were going to talk once you were out?
1: They were still afraid I was going to talk. So at first I gave them a 2 months notice because I thought maybe I, you know, it was really hard to get in the patrol at first, at least as a woman to be a Campo agent. And then
0: what were you going to do? Did you have plans on what you would do next? Nope. If you were to
1: leave? I figured I would just go back to law school. So I started, you know, looking at taking my LSATs again and stuff. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But I kind of felt like I didn't want to go back into law enforcement because I had just assumed it would be the same anywhere else. and. At the time, uh, my girlfriend, she had a business and needed some help. And so I took a minimum wage job working for her, sweeping floors and stuff. I just, you know, I, I couldn't do it. And I even wrote on my exit I- interview, I, the reason why I'm leaving is um, because this agency is hopelessly corrupt. Your managers are unethical and immoral, and I'm not going to be a part of this.
3: Ya
0: mucho aquí. Y la que ya, ya How long did you work there? Six years. Six years. And what did it do to you mentally, your mental health?
1: It took a long time to figure it out. When I first... Left, I was very angry. I think you go through like a grieving process, I suppose, and you have different emotions. And anger is always like a very easy emotion for me to get to, and the first one. And I was very angry because I felt like I have, I have busted my butt right, in the of four course. years of college to get good grades, and then, and then I end up in this crap agency that just is a joke, and you know the. It is so corrupt and unbelievable. And I'm doing the right thing. And this, you know, turns around on me like some kind of Serpico moment or something, you know, what it eventually ended up doing, living all those years with such fight or flight constantly and then just the job itself obviously you know it, w- when you're running through the mountains and you're chasing people and whether you know the the morality of it right or wrong it's it's a lot of adrenaline and it's constant yeah it's your constant. adrenal
0: glands must be fucked oh they are
1: they are yeah <laughs> and um basically i i I started getting, like, around 2013 and 14, I started just... Well, I mean, through many years, my, my wife would tell you I, I had anger issues. What were you angry at? I think it was... The system? The... I think I was misogyny, angry at myself. Yourself. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I was angry at myself. And I still, I think, during that time, wasn't willing to take responsibility for my part in it. Right. You know? And... Eventually, it gets to a point where your body can't sustain that anymore. And people with PTSD, which is what I ended up being diagnosed with, is y- you get to where like you're wearing your nerves on the outside of your body. Mm-hmm. And just like when, you know, somebody you know touches you, you just jerk and you just everything just sets you off sound and too much light and stuff. And then in February of 2015, I just, I just had a break and I tried to kill myself. And I just was like, I just, I just hated myself. Mm, Just the self-loathing of. Yeah. I hated myself so much.
0: What's the worst thing you think, looking back, the worst thing
1: that you saw take place in the name of our country? As an agent or the worst thing I've seen afterwards that agents have done? Because I would have to say the worst thing I've, I've seen has been like, I wasn't a part of it, but. I feel like it's my family that's done it. Well, let's start and I there. I think then. you should know about it. Okay. Tell me. In 2010, a guy named Anastasio Hernandez Rojas, mm-hmm. he's undocumented, been living in San Diego with his family for many years. And uh, I think he was trying to steal some food for his family on the way home from work one night because he didn't have enough money. And just doing a quick five finger discount kind of thing, and yeah, it was wrong. But he got picked up by the local police down in San Diego, and they turned him over for to the border patrol. And he had was told to pour his water out, I believe, and he didn't understand the agent. It's a lot of people think that uh, because the border patrol says that we all speak Spanish fluently, and that's not true. So perhaps it was an agent that didn't speak Spanish fluently. and Also, often they don't speak Spanish. Yeah. Often it's an yeah, indigenous right. language. But Anastasio did. And um, so he is pouring the water like in the trash can as opposed to just throwing the bottle in the trash can. And that pissed the agent off. And so the agent kicks him and and hurts his ankle damages his ankle so the whole time anastasio is saying i need help my ankle hurts and the agents are mad at him and ignoring him so eventually they end up going to voluntarily return him which is done whether it's voluntary or not we just make them sign it and -hmm. say it is Mm -hmm. and push him back across the fence into mexico well they had him handcuffed behind his back and they took him out of the van at the san ysidro port of entry at the time, there were a lot of people crossing and they had their cell phones. So there's videotape of this. It's on YouTube. And they claimed that he attacked them. I don't, I've seen the video. I didn't see him attack them. Plus, he's handcuffed behind his back. I think maybe he might have, if he did anything, he might have said, you know, pinchy migra or something like that. But at any rate, they proceeded to beat him to the ground, and they kicked him, and they beat him. And then at one point, you see like over a dozen agents surrounding him. Oh, God. And they're tasing him.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And they're beating him with his, his their batons and just kicking the crap out of him and tasing him over and over and over. And I think he survived maybe two days, and uh, then he died. And they have still never had any justice. And none of those agents have ever had so much as a day off. Mm. And I looked at that video and it's so very Rodney King-ish, you know, that kind of thing. But what strikes me the most is, is, from my perspective, is I'm looking at those people in green in those same uniforms doing this. And not one of them said... Enough. Well, that's what I don't understand: is
0: why aren't there more Gen Buds coming out saying the injustices that they've seen, that they've witnessed, coming together to change this issue? I mean, it just feels like, and maybe, maybe they will. Maybe more people will come forward. Maybe you're the impetus for that. Maybe people will look at you and say, "You know what? I've, I've." seen some
1: of this I've you know, done I've, some of this and I'm I want to change things I've had people contact me privately but nobody's willing to come forward I mean that why is that because they're scared yeah that's because they're scared a lot of them are say you still afraid for your life um to a certain extent but I think it's something that I'm it's not as much as I was back in that day so you know and I also feel that what I'm saying is what needs to be said, and I that that moves me more than fear. So, um, but as far as why more agents don't come forward and say things, I think you know a lot of the agents who maybe spent their twenty years in, and maybe they disagree with what's going on now. Like you know, they're little older agents like I was, and they disagree, and that's not the patrol of my days. I'm old patrol, right? Would say. Right. They don't want to say anything because they get a pretty good pension, although I think that's an excuse. I don't see how they could take their pension away. But at the same time, I think personally for them to sit there and say, this is wrong. This agency is corrupt. This agency is out of control. The Border Patrol has always been this way. Nobody ever holds them to account so forth and so on, kind of says something about themselves. Yeah, I was just going to say it's a reflection of their inaction. All those badges you got hanging on your wall and all the pictures you got with the guys and the horse patrol and all this other stuff says a lot about you. Because this just didn't come out of nowhere. Like you said, this just didn't come out of Trump.
2: So what I'm asking Congress to do is to give us a third option which we have been requesting since last year, the legal authority to detain and promptly remove families together as
0: a unit. We have to be able to do this. This is the only solution
1: to the border crisis. The Trump administration's top border protection official resigns. John Sanders announced his departure after public outcry over dismal conditions at migrant detention centers. The
0: Trump administration had already dramatically slowed legal entry, forcing thousands of migrants to wait across the border here in Mexico in lines. Then came a policy sending asylum seekers back to Mexico, across bridges like this one here in Juarez, while their cases unfolded in the U.S. Now an expansion of that policy means thousands of more people will be forced to wait here in Mexico facing uncertainty. Are you struggling to sleep these days? Yep, so am I. Actually, one in three U.S. adults doesn't get enough sleep. And if you're not sleeping enough, it can affect your cognitive functions during the day like learning, problem solving, and decision making. And that's why I'm partnering with Calm, the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. The sleepless are more prone to accidents, weight gain, and depression. With Calm, you'll discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and body needs. Like Soundscapes and over a hundred sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. Right now, Sorry Not Sorry listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at com slash sorry. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash sorry. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash sorry. Shopping for fine jewelry can be more than a little bit overwhelming. It can be hard to find something that perfectly complements your style, and it could be even harder to know whether you're getting the best value for the price, especially considering the fact that most fine jewelry retailers mark up prices by 500 to 1,000%. No Emmy believes that luxury jewelry doesn't have to be overpriced, and that's why they cut out the middleman to deliver exceptional products without the exorbitant markup. They design and manufacture everything in-house, and they only sell directly to consumers. So you get the finest quality jewelry and save an average of 50% compared to other luxury brands. They use reclaimed 18-karat gold, a sustainable option with the perfect balance of strength and purity. With a five-star rating and thousands of online reviews, No Emmy is the safest place to buy jewelry online. Every piece comes authenticity guaranteed with IGI certificate detailing color, clarity, and appraisal value. Noemi also offers a lifetime warranty and free shipping and returns on every product, including engravings and custom designs. You can even get a no-interest monthly payment plan over four months with no hidden costs or extra charges. So if you're looking for the finest quality jewelry from a luxury brand you can trust, look no further. Go to hellonoemi.com. Slash sorry to see their collections and get fifty dollars off your first purchase with promo code SORRY. That's an even better deal on top of spending a fraction of what you'd pay for other luxury brands. Just go to H E L L O N O E M I E dot com slash sorry and don't forget to use promo code SORRY for fifty dollars off your first purchase. So everything that we're seeing right now and we're hearing about the treatment of immigrants and asylum seekers in detention, how they're being picked up, how families are being separated, how women are giving birth as they're sitting in front of 40 people and they're shackled and then the baby is taken away from them, not getting medical treatment. Is it safe to say that none of this surprises you?
1: It does not surprise me because of how I've seen it grow. I mean, it, I am surprised in that I never thought this agency would get that far. But if you're paying attention to watching what happened after 9-11 through mm-hmm. Bush and Obama, it's like this, this, this agency has been waiting for it's Donald Trump. Right. And it's found it. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to go as far and as bad and as nasty as it can go.
0: I feel like all fear and hate mongers have been waiting for their Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. I also think that there is a a certain element where people hear this and think it's propaganda from the Democrats, where they think, oh, it can't possibly be this bad. The Democrats are just saying it's this bad because they're politicizing the issue of immigration. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Is it really this bad, or do you think that like the Republicans say that the Democrats are lying about it.
1: It is really this bad. And, and and I say that from personal experience. I volunteer at the shelter in San Diego. So before MPP, we had roughly like at least 300 people being brought there every day, if not more. And CBP would pull up these giant, you know, regular like bus, just a giant greyhound kind of bus, but it was CBP. And off the bus they would come and they would stand in line. And and the very first time I did it was just so emotional for me because I remember putting people on buses like that. And I remember standing there in a green uniform and and barking orders in Spanish, and now I'm here to help them. So that was...
0: You keep mentioning the green uniform. Do Do you think that the uniforms have been too militarized? Yeah, yeah.
3: I'm going to be a shooting man. i shooting, shooting, shooting man. The best I can. The best I can. Your uncle's. Your uncle's. Hey, hey. The best
1: The best The I see it now, like I think the migrants see it, you know, it's like, oh, look out. Here mm. comes the green uniform, you know, called the green monster. So at the, sh- at the shelters, I see kids standing before me and they're flown in from Texas. These aren't people who have crossed in San Diego. Right. And they, and why are they flying them to San Diego from Texas? Well, they're doing that because they've been holding them in Texas for at least two weeks. Two months, and they fly them to San Diego to make it more difficult for them to get back to Texas because that's where their hearings are. So they're trying to make them miss their hearings. Yep. And once you miss your hearing, then your asylum claim is thrown out. So that's one giant waste of money. Um, but then I'm I'm looking at these kids, and I don't so much worry about the kids who are crying. And are able to talk to their mothers, even though they may be crying and they're sick. Uh, I worry about the kids that cannot speak and cannot eat and just have nothing left. They've just given up. And I know that look, because I've been there, like I just told you. I know that feeling. Withdrawn. Know? Mm-hmm. Looks like they've surrendered. Mm-hmm. That I just want to give up, because I've been there. And these kids... Ha- Their heads are covered in lice and they're wearing the same clothes that they've had for two weeks or months. The parents are covered in scabies. Kids have temperatures of over 103. I have thrown kids and their parents in the back of my car, rushing them to children's hospital to try and get them to a doctor as soon as I can. We have people who have medicine children who are epileptic or asthma and the border patrol has taken all their belongings and thrown them away everything is that protocol is that normal no yeah. i've never heard of that you know and these border patrol stations that they're holding them in are just like a drunk tank they're just they're just benches to sit on with one toilet i've never seen anything like that so this is real I mean I've seen grown men fall to their knees and just sob and sob because they have not been able to take care of their kids because their child will not eat because she's afraid that if she eats she'll get yelled at again because the border patrol yells at them. You know, I have young women coming to me with blood-stained pants because they won't give them any sanitary napkins or anything. They think of Every way that they can make these kids and their parents, their lives miserable, and they do it, whether it's throwing their food on the floor, whether it's not giving them sanitary napkins, whether it's making them use one toilet and they've got 150 people and they give them one roll of toilet paper, you know, um, they're feeding them. Dehumanizing Yeah, just everything. Everything, screaming at them, telling them, "You don't belong here. Go back to your own country. We don't want you here." And it just, I, I've never heard or seen anything like that. There's, there is a difference, and I'm not saying the patrol of my day was, you know, obviously I've said this, it wasn't great or anything. There's a lot of corruption and, and and racism and stuff going on, but I have never seen anything like this. This is. It is insane what's going on right now. I I think that most Americans are disturbed and very upset about this. I think most Americans don't know what they can do about it. I think most Americans are working day to day trying to keep the roof over their heads and do things like that. And the thought of going down to a border patrol station and, you know, knocking on the door and saying, we demand you let these people go and this and that. They have kids. They have bills to pay. They have, you know.
0: Yeah. I think that like many of these issues that we're facing right now as a nation, worrying about them is a true privilege. Yeah. Because so many families are just trying to make ends meet.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think our government learned that if you look back at Vietnam, part of the reason why people were able to get into the streets and protest is because because the draft affected everybody. Everyone. And this does not affect us White people But directly. that's
0: why you, what you're doing is so very important yeah. because you've seen it from the inside. And I've done visits to detention centers and I've been to the border, mm. but getting a glimpse into exactly what from both sides, because I think it's important to understand the position that that mm-hmm. agents are put in as well. Absolutely. And the systemic indoctrination that happens within the agency. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and then that's the management is the one that is responsible for this. Yes, these agents are responsible for enforcing this, but let's be honest, these agents just didn't decide to do this. They're being trained to do this, they're being given propaganda to feel this way. They they've been they've been massaged and and, and trained for this. Right. You know, they haven't been trained to say, "Yes, we're out here to catch drugs. We're out here to catch, you know, uh counterfeit goods that are coming across we're out here to rescue people and sometimes there are migrants that come across and they're just trying to find a job but there's a legal way to do it and we we can't let, you know we need to take them over to get their asylum over here and that's how that's so how, how we did it when you, how, i was an How agent. would you fix the system? I wouldn't stop spending so much money on law enforcement. They have they are using a law enforcement hammer to to nail a humanitarian crisis. You know they're they're trying to fix it with the wrong tool. And, but it benefits them because it benefits politicians because they keep this crisis going on the border. And we all are sitting here going, well, that's their problem down there. If but you had to here,
0: identify the crisis, how, how do you identify?
1: The crisis is politicians, whether they be Democrat or Republican using the border communities to play politics. You know, both sides have been bad. Nobody ever comes down to the border and says, what is it that you need? Nobody ever goes down to the people that have been working down there, like from Alliance San Diego and and stuff like that, and says, what is it that we can do? Nobody ever asks Or how's your mental health? How are you hanging in there? How are the communities that are going on down here? Nobody ever goes to the people who've gone through the asylum system and said, what should we do? I mean, the fact of the matter is, is we've had decades and decades to know that uh, asylum from climate change and from wars. This is what That's we're right. going to see more and more and more.
0: That's exactly and right. And what we're saying is. Migration is, is, is always going to happen, right. and especially in
1: climate change. Yeah. It's a human devastation. condition. Yep. And, and, and what they're saying is, is we're not going to deal with it. We're, we're just going to say no. That's how we're going to deal with it. We're going to put our walls up and we're going to ignore them and let them die. It's not our problem. Or, You could take at least half of that money, $24 billion that they're given to this, cut the Border Patrol in half, and you could hire asylum officers who are highly trained in this, and you could have welcoming facilities at the ports of entry where you're not metering people. And you interview everybody and you run your fingerprints. We're not saying open borders. We're not saying... Due process, humane... Due process. Humane system for due process. Bring immigration system out of its... It should not be under DHS. And the immigration courts need to be under the judiciary. You know, I mean, immigration courts are a
3: joke.
0: During a recent visit to an immigration courtroom in Phoenix, um, I witnessed several children go before a judge, and toward the end of a hearing, saw a one-year-old go before a judge um, for his immigration case. Um, There's no minimum age for children to appear in immigration court, so um, even infants can be given a notice to appear and brought in front of a judge. ¿Tienes muchos amiguitos ahí?
3: Sí. eh. ¿Cómo se sienten tus amiguitos? Tristes. ¿Qué te dicen?
0: Uh, I'm going to ask you some yes or no questions. Is the agency a threat to immigrants and their well-being? Yes. Is the agency a threat to American citizens? Yes. To our Constitution? Yes. To our Bill of Rights? Yes. It feels totally overwhelming. And before you said... Um, that you feel that people don't know what they can do yeah. in order to make a difference. What can people do if people are at home right now and are moved by your story and want to help? What can they do?
1: Well, there's different organizations that they can obviously donate to. Though I know a lot of people are donating as much as they can donate. Um, I would say um, any kind of rapid response network. There's various ones. Those are the runs. Ones- that run the migrant shelters in the United States. And there's a southernborder.org, which is the Southern Border Community Coalition, which is a bunch, like over 60 different groups. And what they're trying to do is talk about border governance. And, and so they don't just say border patrol is bad and that's it. They, you know, they have ideas of how they want their communities on the border to look like mm. and not be militarized. Mm. And, um, so that's important as well, calling their congressmen and women. Um, but also just getting involved locally. I mean, every, every state in the union has an ICE facility. Every state has, at least in the, in the major cities is going to have probably a border patrol or ICE. And you probably have shelters and stuff that you can go and volunteer at. And at the very least, you can you could an immigration court.
0: I'm sorry, an immigration court. You can yeah, go drop and by immigration an, an immigration court. An immigration court. Make your face yeah, seen so that you're witnessing it. So there's a there's a great it?
1: group on Twitter uh, called hashtag Citizen Presence, and it's it's a group of people under uh, Heidi Feldman, who's a, a law professor and at Georgetown. And she just got together and said, hey, I I need some money to send some people that want to go down and be witnesses at Clint, Texas or want to go because El Paso is where a lot of this is going on and or go watch immigration and court and stuff and just be witnesses. And so that they know we're watching them, which is why MPP started. Because they didn't want us seeing what they were doing to asylum seekers. So now they're down in Mexico and we're not seeing what we're doing to them. And then we started going down there. So now they're doing this third-party country thing and making it so none of them can get here. So they're making it even harder for us to help asylum seekers. But that's what they're also doing with these courts. They say it's because we need these expedited courts to get people through, but they're not hiring any more judges. It's not going to make anything faster. What they're doing is they're making these tent courts so that then you can't see them. Right. Yeah, that's why they're doing it. And is it
0: at some ridiculous number, like 500 immigration judges to over a million cases? Yeah, yeah.
1: Which is... And they they put a quota on them. We want you to clear this many people, this many day, you know, kind of thing. And what gives you hope? What gives me hope... Is that I see alliances being made, you know, that maybe wouldn't have been made in the past. I see more people willing to speak out and wanting to do just anything they can do.
0: The curtain certainly has been lifted. Yeah. If this was all done in the shadows before, mm-hmm. at least there's a little bit more accountability.
1: Yeah. There will be in the future.
0: I think so. Nearly everyone who serves in government, whether in the military, in law enforcement, in public service, or in lawmaking, is a patriot. No matter their political affiliation or whether that patriotism is the primary reason they serve, the very act of service, of devoting some of your life to keeping people safe or making the nation a better place, takes a special person. There is pride in that work. There is also a tremendous responsibility Because when you serve our nation, you also represent all of us. You show the world who we are, and you have an important role in shaping who we will become. You are the human embodiment of the American government. That's why it's so important to have people in our institutions who are willing and courageous to speak out when they see someone who is not living up to the rules and expectations we have as Americans. People who, when those who lead those institutions violate our laws or our most important principles, speak out against those actions. We desperately need these people. They are our national conscience telling us when we are on the wrong path. And this is why we need protections for whistleblowers and a government filled with people who honor those protections. There are those who insist my country, right or wrong, means shut up and let it happen. To me, this is the dumbest and most dangerous way of thinking. America is my country, yes. And yes, right or wrong, it will always be my country. But that doesn't mean we keep allowing it to be wrong. It means when people stand up and say, no, this is wrong, we take care of them. We respect their patriotism. We don't try and publicly identify them to intimidate them, to scare them into silence. They are the best among us. Jen Bud told the truth about a dangerous culture in our immigration system. Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, showed the ongoing criminal activity in the Nixon administration. Dave Ellsberg told the nation of the wrongs involved in our conduct of the Vietnam War when he leaked the Pentagon Papers. Frank Serpico helped root out corruption in the New York Police Department. Everyone who told their Me Too stories changed a culture of sexual harassment and abuse. And the Ukraine whistleblower is showing us again... That when our government goes wrong, no matter how powerful the wrongdoer, it is an act of patriotism and an act of courage to tell the truth about what happened. Universally, those who committed the wrongs, these brave Americans pointed out, tried to question the motives of those who revealed them. But here's the thing. None of their motivations matter. The only thing that matters is whether the people in power committed the wrongdoing the whistleblowers allege. We need these patriots. We need their courage. This is how we hold our leaders accountable. How we prove that nobody is above the law. Artist and activist Fad Alekbarov said every country needs its whistleblowers. They are crucial to a healthy society. The employee who, in the public interest, has the independence of judgment and the personal courage to challenge malpractice or illegality is a kind of public hero. He was so right. Now, more than ever, we need heroes. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Alison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windisch. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.